0: and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started.
1: My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you into the field where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that, can possibly change your life or at least move you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion today we come to you from my living room i'm sitting on my purple couch here in my sumptuous apartment in beautiful las vegas nevada known to some as the hottest city in america i'm here with my production assistant princess stella juliana she is a domestic short hair black cat for those of you who've not been tuning in regularly and there's an introduction to our new listeners Who are joining us for the first time? We are going to cover a topic that I really love. We've had a few guests on in the past year on this particular subject, and this particular, if you want to call it, keyword. And I love the different perspectives about it. And today we're going to take it from an angle that we have not explored yet up until now. So it's about mindfulness. And we're going to show you the key to mindfulness. And this is going to be with a focus on how it affects your abilities as a coach and as a leader. This is something we have a lot of coaches who tune in. And most of our audience is involved and interested in some sort of leadership, whether it's entrepreneurial leadership, whether it's leadership in their causes, whether it's leadership among their friends and families. Our guest today, Matt Theolman, works with leaders and change makers to help them live into their purpose more fully and bring their masterpieces to the world. He educates and trains coaches to be world-class in their field and help their clients reach their full potential. I'm going to skip over a part of the bio because it's very nice, and I actually want Matt to tell the story himself, but I'm going to go to the part where I let you know that he's been a leadership coach since 2016, and he spent the year 2021 as CEO of... Pelea, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a coaching organization for venture-backed founders. After a year of intense growth and hard work, Matt turned his focus back to coaching and other soul work he's called to bring to the world. And it's simply a continuation of what Matt views as a lifelong mission to heal himself, help others heal, and lead others with authenticity. These are things we're going to focus on for part of our conversation today. Matt is also releasing a book uh, coming up April 2023. I believe it's called This is Coaching. He will correct me on that in a second if I'm wrong, but let's get to that point now. Matthew Thielman, come on in. The weather's fine.
2: Hey, thanks, Adam. You were 100% right about everything you just said. Oh, no correction thanks. needed.
1: Well, yeah. dang, I'm going 100 for 100 here. <laughs> all right. So the reason I cannot read off your entire bio is because it's so impressive that I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. And this is my show. What we like to do here before we dive in, and Matt, if you've ever, if you checked this out at all before you hopped on, uh, you might have seen this. The very first question is always, I read your official bio. Fantastic. Great stuff. Honored to have you here. But let's hear a bit from your perspective, a little bit about your story, about what's brought you here today, serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. And go.
2: Yeah, cool. Thank you. The honest truth is um, a lot of the journey only makes sense when I look backwards. And, um, And so today, kind of where I am today is that I'm about to launch a book for coaches, Um, it's related to two of my missions in the world. One is, um, for every founder in the world to have a coach and I can talk about why that is one of my missions. It's, uh, it's related to how this idea of mindful leadership came to me a number of years ago. And my second mission is for every coach in the world to be world-class, um, and that's because if we have crappy coaches coaching people, then it's not going to make a very big impact. And so um, my work these days is a combination of supporting coaches, as you said, to be amazing and supporting the people who are leading change in the world That's business makers. Um, the journey here started uh, when I was young and I was interested in spiritual stuff that people my age weren't really uh, known to talk about that led to... Uh, and inquiries in college, where I studied psychology and sociology, was always interested in why people do what they do. I found myself working as a marketer, and the idea that if I wanted to make an impact in the world, um, the best place to do that or the best way to do that was to gain money, power, and influence. That was how I thought it would be done, and marketing was the the fastest way that I knew, based on my skill set, to get close to money and influence. And what happened during that time was I saw some really amazing organizational leaders and I saw some really terrible organizations and leaders and, um, frankly was tired of the way that I, I I saw a lot of people leading. And I, I realized that instead of trying to sell stuff to people, um, what I'm really here to do is to help people, um, lead in a better way. And that's how I discovered mindfulness. It. And that that sort of set me on the track for why we're here today, but I, it's probably a good place to pause and just say like, that was the inception point was moving from just marketing to thinking about how do we actually lead in the way that I think we can lead as humans.
1: Well, you know, that's, I, I love that perspective. And this seems to come up a lot on our uh, on our conversations about this topic of mindfulness. Uh, there's a phrase that I have. Found myself saying in almost everyone, someone's gonna get it out of the way with you. You mentioned that it seemed like wealth was the way to success. If I heard you correctly, and the fastest way to get there was through marketing. Now, yeah. people. Now, people approach life with a money mindset, and if they don't have a good money mindset, they should have one. It's my fervent belief, and I've proven this time and time again with my own uh, variants of success and failures. I've gone through my journey that it is so much more effective and you make so much more of a difference when you serve from an overflowing cup, rather than worrying if you can afford to hand over your last dime. Uh, I believe that when we create, we have the ability to raise the tide and buoy all the ships. And I encourage everybody to do that. Along with that, if your focus is entirely on the money and get because you're looking to achieve wealth, you're looking to achieve status, you're looking to achieve success. Hey, you know what, that's fine, because greed, for lack of a better word, is good when you listen to Gordon Gecko's entire speech. That being said, it's interesting that when you focus on mindfulness and when you focus on people, that's actually the shortcut to wealth,
2: yeah, I mean, it, I I love that you bring up mindset immediately because we start to work in the realm of mindfulness then, and I'll share that my transition. I, I'm still a work in progress when it comes to my own money mindset. I probably will be for the rest of my life, and the reason that I started to work in marketing is that a lot of folks who came out of school with the skills and training that I did went to work in grassroots organizations and nonprofits and really live that sort of. Um, uh, uh, lifestyle of not, I think making the type of money that their their impact was deserving of. And, and so I intentionally chose something different right away, which was to, to say like, where, as you said, like, how can I personally have an overflowing cup so that, um, I can make an impact in the world. And I, I just was, for me, a matter of looking at the game that seems to be occurring in the world around us, which is that, you know, Folks who have money, power, and influence tend to have a bigger impact. You just have more leverage to use. And so that's where I went. Um, and to your to where you, you ended us up is that mindfulness is is the gateway to all of our impacts. I, I think you're wholly in, in the right place there in that it forces us to start to ask really important questions, which is what's really important to me, which is really important to my organization. Why do we exist in the first place? What's the, the mission or impact that we want to achieve in the world? And when those questions start to be asked, when we really start to look in the mirror, um, then we, uh, I think a lot of our decisions are handled for us. And a lot of the fears or scarcity ideas that we have about asking for money, those sort of melt away when we're really clear on the impact we want to make.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's funny. When you, when you appreciate your own wealth, uh, you have this Ability to confidently ask for what it is you want. You're able to articulate your value because you yourself resonate with it. That was one of my journeys becoming more successful as an entrepreneur myself, is that for so many years, I was infected by a very negative relationship with money and success. And I've traced it back to incidents in my childhood. I've uh, traced it back to family patterns. And I've also traced it back to an exercise we were given when I was in the fifth grade. So what we're going to do here is we're going to role play for one second. You want to role play for a second? Let's do it. Okay. So let's imagine you're in the fifth grade. And you are given an in-class essay assignment. You just have to fill out one piece of paper. And here's the question you need to answer. Listen carefully to the wording. Matt, if you won the lottery for a million dollars, what would you do with the money?
2: This question reminds me of the uh, movie Office Space. Okay. Uh, where they complain that no one would become a garbage man and there'd be no one to pick up our trash because uh, no one would want to work.
1: That is an interesting perspective. Well, when we took that, when we answered that question, we found yeah. out very quickly that there was only one correct answer. You had to make a list of who you would give the money away to, and you had to give away every penny of it.
2: That's what your teacher taught you.
1: Yep. <laughs> any 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 response that did not involve a list of people you gave it away to that added up to one million dollars was incorrect. Now that left out the part that you don't really win a million dollars in the lottery; you win something like five hundred sixty-five thousand after they get the taxes. But still, yeah. uh, let's leave that part out and assume you actually get the whole million. Here's the problem with that: there are two problems. Number yeah. one, it's the assumption and the programming that you're not supposed to have money, that if you have it, you are selfish if you don't give it away, that you're hoarding, that you're not caring about other people, etc. Then let's look at how the question itself is structured. If you won a million dollars in the lottery, so what does that mean? You can't be really successful with the business and earn a million dollars. You can't have a really good job and accumulate a million dollars. If you're a star athlete you can't sign a contract with a team for a million dollars that for us the only way we get we get a million dollars is by luck and if we get that luck we're supposed to forsake it so money and wealth that's bad you can't have that everybody else can have it but no no not you not you oh and by the way there's no way that you can achieve it yourself it's only going to happen if you buy a dog if you spend a dollar to buy a ticket and you just so happen to get the right lineup of numbers
2: that hurts my heart for fifth grade you adam yep yep um
1: so here's here here's another question what's the difference between a bmw and a porcupine
2: <laughs> I, I don't know
1: okay uh, on the porcupine the pricks on the outside
2: ooh that was, is that a joke that was told to you when you were growing up
1: oh over and over again so what if you're if you can afford a BMW or you have a BMW that you are a bad person, you're a prick. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Tough. Mm-hmm.
2: that's tough. Yeah, that's some that's some uh like um abundance avoidance right there.
1: Yeah. Uh when I when I went off to college, my freshman year at Penn State, I made a friend uh i actually interviewed him on my other podcast. His name is Scott Schrader. Uh he And I met this guy, he was, I was a freshman, he was a sophomore, and he was quite an interesting dude. And among the things that were interesting about him is uh, the first time I met him and uh, we went on a Denny's run, going to Denny's at one o'clock in the morning was a big deal when you're a freshman in college. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I uh, rode shotgun in his 1987 Porsche 944. I told people about the Porsche and they said, oh, must, must be nice. He must be rich. You should hang out with him. Maybe you can get some of his money. It's like, no, 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 no. He wasn't given the car. He bought the car in cash. He paid $10,000 for the 1987 Porsche 944. This was 1994. It was a a seven-year-old car, and it depreciated to the point where it was worth about $10,000. Before that, he had a Corvette and a Camaro, both of which he paid for out of his own money. And if you go to my other podcast, you find that episode. He tells you the story about how that ownership of that vehicle introduced him to so many opportunities and so many networking connections that facilitate him through life. And also a story of how he got to the place at that very young age to be able to raise his own capital to do that. So it's again, also interesting. But yeah, but me. when I, yeah, but when I told the story, there was just a complete lack of belief that it was possible that a 19 year old could pay for cash for a car like that. It, it, it was like outside people's comprehension that either you were a rich kid and your parents bought it for you, or that's the only way you could possibly have it. There was no such thing as you could be that age and actually come up with that much money.
2: Yeah. And and what I, what I also heard is, um, you know, be friends with him so you can take advantage of his money and get some yep. of it, right? So I got like- I got
1: that message. I found it repulsive because he's actually yeah. one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met.
2: Well, props to you for being up to shifting that money mindset.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, put all that together, and we already have this issue that we're being programmed, as you said. And so, when you got to that place, you felt that uh, you felt that achieving money, lots of money. And doing it through marketing was the way to go. That's what I heard you say. Did I hear that correctly?
2: was how I saw, I mean, generally that was how I viewed that the the game that seems to be playing, being played around us would go is that I, I was clear that the way that I wanted to play the game was to move toward money, power, and influence so that I can make an impact again from the idea that I'm clearly here to make an impact. And so what's the shortest and highest leverage way that I can do that?
1: Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Now, now let's contrast this with another message I got. And this is when I was in MBA school uh, at at Duquesne University. I can't remember the name of the class. I can't remember the exact name of the professor. I just know I used to see him at the gym because he and I went to the same gym. And um, he asked the class one day, what is the purpose of a business? And I raised my hand and I said, purpose of a business is to make money. And he spent the next five minutes castigating me, mocking my answer, saying, oh, so what are you saying that the purpose of living is to breathe? Well, yeah, kind of, because what happens if you don't breathe?
2: How'd you do in the class?
1: I got an A. You're going to be, yeah, you are going to die real quick if you don't breathe. Your business doesn't make money. If you don't make money, you ain't going to make it. It's that simple. And furthermore, if you are constantly worrying about money, that's going to affect your mind, and it's going to take away from your ability to achieve whatever it is, including mindfulness. Because the, uh, oh, my God, how am I going to pay my rent is going to kind of mess with that juju and (laughs) mess up your mind waves, so uh, you're going to find yourself kind of caught in a trap. And, and and I speak from experience on this, as many people do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough to be of service when we're constantly worried about achieving our own kind of basic needs. I definitely yeah. hear that.
1: Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy is very important, particularly that lower level. I mean, um, you uh, it, it, people sometimes wonder how certain politicians keep getting elected over and over again. I looked into this and I noticed a trend. That you know the old thing of Congress has you know Congress for example uh, tends to rate lower in popularity polls than root canals, but people keep electing their same Congress person their same senator over and over again, and they say, "Well, yeah, all the other ones suck, but mine's awesome." You know, what makes theirs awesome? They What's deliver that? goods for the community, patronage, money, yeah. money. They get the they, they they get the bills passed they get the projects in they get the roads built uh hurricane comes that road is fixed that bridge is back up your power is back on so the thread is that yeah your your person's probably as bad as the other 534 uh by however you measure that but they're taking care of your lower level Maslow's hierarchy of needs people aren't going to give that up they're not going to take a chance.
2: Yeah. That's interesting. I, uh, I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, I, I mean, for personally, I think about like when, when politicians are doing their best, they're, uh, yeah. working on behalf of their community. Yeah.
1: When they're doing, when they're doing their best. And sometimes you have to be flexible with the terms working on behalf of the community, but that is often what it comes down to. They sit their constituency that with that person and their influence in the legislature or whatever body they're on, they can bring home the bacon. If they change that person, now they're going to have a junior representative who's not going to have the same clout, and they're not going to get the same deals when it's time to slice up the pork. It's that simple.
2: I didn't. Uh, I didn't expect we'd be we'd be talking about Congress when I hopped on today. This is a joy.
1: Yeah. Well. Um, well, that was my whole point about it, and I wanted to lay a little bit of a foundation about some of the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that can influence our mindfulness in ways that we don't recognize programming we got as we've received, as we've come along, um, being told what the game was, given an understanding of what the game was uh, and seeing how we strive for these things. And yet we feel that sometimes the deck is stacked wholly against us. So we find ourselves buying back into those same patterns and those same cycles of well, that may be for some people, but I'm just me.
2: Yeah, in many ways, it's the human condition to to uh, you know notice the patterns that we grew up with, to work to rewrite them, and then to fall back into them on a regular basis. and And that's one of the reasons that I that I get to do what I do is that um, change and transformation is is challenging and takes time. And so I I totally hear you on that. That's why I admitted at the very front that I'm still in the middle of my own you know, money mindset shifts on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you also mentioned uh, your lifelong mission to heal yourself and help others heal. Isn't that part of what we do as coaches and leaders? And we sometimes find ourselves telling our own stories. As a podcast host, one of my great joys is telling stories about the hours that weren't exactly my finest hours. Uh, Candidly, uh, times when I really screwed up or did wrong. And the reason I share that is because of the guilt that is placed upon society that inhibits them from being able to heal. Like, oh, my God, what if they found out that I wasn't perfect in that relationship? What if what if the world knew that I wasn't the best relationship partner with my with my last companion? What if they found out my marriage wasn't perfect and part of it was my fault? Oh, no. Uh, oh, I, I can't, I, uh, uh, I, I got to hide from this. I, ca- I can't talk about this out loud. I have a reputation to protect. So I share my stuff so that people can see they're not alone. And I can even say to them, hey, welcome to the club, pal. And without necessarily having to publicly share their own story, they can join me as I work through mine, my own healing, my own journey can help others heal because they can embrace their simpatico with me and walk beside me on the journey.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for being up to uh, sharing openly that way. My, my personal bias is that the way that we heal these wounds, the way that we can heal our minds. We talk, as you talk about that is, is through um, bringing them to the light of day. And so, Um, I personally have been on, uh, this sort of quest in most of my adult life. I lived for the first, I want to say like 25, but it was actually probably 35 years of my life trying to be superhuman, trying to, to be, um, completely invulnerable and to go, uh, essentially heal any of my vulnerabilities before anyone else could spot them. Cause that that was the way that I thought I could get love and, um, I'm learning to undo that. And one of the things that I really love about being a coach, and what I think is one of the things I think is really special about the relationship with coaches, to your point, is that it's a space where our clients, where the people we have can share those parts of themselves that they would be unwilling or afraid to share anywhere else in the world so that they can be brought to light, so that they can love and accept and, and kind of move through those things um, that are generally getting in their way. All
1: of us have intellectual junk food. Mine uh, mine includes cat videos, playing Tetris, uh, playing online poker, and watching old clips of the Steve Wilco show. And I, I remember playing as if it's on my screen right now, watching one of those clips from the Steve Wilco show. And it was an episode where he was trying to resolve a conflict between a mother and a daughter. And it got really dramatic and ended up backstage. And I remember what he said to the daughter when she was saying, oh, I, oh, my family's so dysfunctional, we can never fix this. And he said, every family's dysfunctional. My family's dysfunctional. If there weren't dysfunctional families, I wouldn't have a job.
2: Uh, I love that, yeah. And, here, uh... and, here's,
1: and, and here's what I got out of it. Uh, when I see family patterns that tend to gloss over that and create these Norman Rockwell images of family harmony that never even existed, I see that that's where some of the worst toxicity comes up cuz problems get swept under the rug things happen over and over again and resentments simmer. I mean sometimes sometimes it's easier now now my mo- now my mother's not a drug addict by any means. I mean she smoked for a lot of years but she never did drugs. But uh but uh yeah but let's say your mother was a drug addict. I mean it would be it uh, I mean think think about it. Is it liberating to say yeah, you know, my my mother was a nut and she, she was constantly snorting coke. But uh, I tell you, uh, she was there for me at every single one of my soccer games. It allows you to give a nuanced view that, that enables you to accept her as the human being she was, the beautifully imperfect human being she was, and separate those things that might have been traumatic for you so that you have the opportunity to enjoy the parts that were beneficial for you.
2: You got it, my man. I mean, I I think um, the the secret to to growth in life is being able to hold both of those perspectives as truth at the same time, and that's a really challenging thing to do for many of us.
1: Yeah, I found some of the healthiest families are the ones where the kid can say, "Yeah, my dad's a real fuck up, but I love the guy."
2: Yeah, I, I have a good yeah. friend. Uh, I have a good friend who's. who's and, threat,
1: and, and, and to be uh, clear, my dad's not a fuck up. He's a wonderful man. So, and yeah. I have, and I say that because uh, one of the blessings of me doing podcasting is my parents actually tune in and they finally understand what I do for a living.
2: Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's that's also the gift of you sharing. Yeah. It it reminds me, I have a, I have a good friend who's a therapist and she said one of the, the, the like signs of healing from a kid is when they can say um, mom and dad, you didn't do good enough. um, And I love you. And that's Okay. And like both of those things can be true. Like you yeah. did your best and it wasn't good enough. Like that yeah. is actually a sign of a true, like deep relationship of like, like it is true that we're always all trying our best. And it is also true that sometimes we don't do very great.
1: Yeah. When mom wasn't strung out on Coke, she was in the front row, my little league game, and she was there with the back team when I skinned my knee. Both those things can
2: exist. Yeah. Yeah. And there and there are kids who have parents who, you know, by by every other measure, um, are at work making money for the family and never there at Little League games. Right. And it's the same. It's the same sort of can you hold both of those? as true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also possible if you had workaholic parents uh, who were never there to uh, also embrace the fact that uh, that was the best way they could care for you.
2: Yep. Yep. And it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's possible and it's to have both. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not,
1: it's not it's not it's not easy. You wish yeah. your parents were around because when you're a kid, you cared more about your parents being there than necessarily how much money they gave you. But at the same time, you come to appreciate that that was they were doing the best they could to help you have a better life than they did.
2: And And to kind of hold us back to where we started in some of the work I do is we all just get to excavate that as adults. We're all in the workplace. We're all leading. We're all doing that thing, but, and we all have all of this baggage from childhood. Right. And so, Um, our boss, our coworker, someone who works for us, they're all going to trigger these, these sort of memories and mindsets and experiences we have from growing up. And that's the work that we get to do as coaches. And that's the work that we get to do. If we have a mindfulness practice is to excavate and work through that and say like, Oh yeah, that little me who is devastated because um, my mom was doing drugs or my dad wasn't able to make it to to little league. Like that little me is, is Um, deserves to be honored and I can love my parents and like all of that can be true. And that's really challenging. And then, and then uh, how do I use that now to inform how I'm going to lead or how I'm going to work in my day-to-day life?
1: All right. So let's transition. You gave me a few points you wanted us to cover when we were having our initial green room chat. So the one, let's just start broad here is what, how does one become a great coach and a great leader? Maybe we've a little bit of foundation for that, but let's hear your definition
2: so the way that we do it is by exactly what we're talking about is working on our own stuff first. So there's an idea that, um, as we talked about that leaders have all their shit together, that coaches have to have all the answers in order to coach and that stuff. That's just purely false. What it is instead is that that tremendous leadership and tremendous coaching are, is a willingness to be in the courageous growth of ourselves, which is that, I, again, as we just kind of talked about is that we all have all of this stuff that is holding us back mindset, trauma, old baggage, and to be really good at either one of those is to be in a commitment to working through that in service of someone else or in service of a greater mission. That's pretty esoteric, but what it means is that like, for example, again, um, say I'm a business leader. Um, I'll just use my own, my own company as an example. So, uh, I'm growing my own coaching business. When I first started, I didn't want to sell. I had a hard time with that. And in order to be successful, I get to become good at selling. And so courageous leadership or courageous coaching is to be say, okay, great. When, when I move toward that thing, I want to move towards, which is to get good at selling. I have to go through these obstacles and I'm going to do that. And that to me is the the hallmark of someone who's really good.
1: Yeah. And selling is sometimes the hardest thing uh, when you don't don't necessarily have that. Uh, So here's what I say. I say, look, you've got problems. I've got solutions. You want it? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make you a great deal, a tremendous deal, the best deal. See, there's this problem, and it's about to get fixed. You know the problem. It's a terrible problem, but it's about to go away. Watch this. See your problem? Gone. No more problem. All it takes is a stack of $100 bills. They will do the immediate job. We know where we're going, so let's get there. I like cash. Do you like cash? Let's do cash. Oh, is cash a problem? That's all right. Finance will slice a check. Give them a call. Let them know. You and me, we're doing this.
2: That's like a, a sales clo- pitch and a song in one.
1: I closed, I've closed deals just by saying that.
2: I love, I love the clarity of it and, and the yeah. way that it just cuts through all of the other stuff because so many of us are so afraid of the truth, of which is you need to give me some money so that we can do a thing to solve your problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really cuts to it. And and it also has an element of artful vagueness to it so that the recipient can plug in what what is their problem? What do they mm. want to have solved? Show them the vision of that disappearing. And they just have to do this one thing and it's taken care of. Everything else is just details. And I encourage people to recite this out loud to themselves simply because it enables them to position themselves as a dynamic problem solver. What the problem is, is dependent on who the prospect is. Like when people ask me, so what do you, like if I go to networking events, say, oh, so what do you do? You know what? I don't want to answer that question because I think I think it's I think it's actually a self-defeating question. What I want to know is what is the problem my prospect has? What what are their goals? What are they looking to achieve? Once I know that, then I know if and if yes, how what I do can get them there. Otherwise, otherwise, they can just read my business card. I mean, that, that that's about how effective that is. And you know, and I, I mean, I think you're familiar that uh, uh, in whether you agree with the statement or not, you know, this is a real thing that there are folks who carry business cards not to develop contacts but to get out of conversations. If it's a real conversation, it's heading toward a business deal. They're scheduling their follow up appointment right then and there. But they hand you the card. That's a way of saying sorry, got to go.
2: Yeah, yeah. I sign up for my email list and get to me one day. But I'm yeah. going to go talk to someone I want to talk to.
1: Precisely, precisely. So to me, to me, circling back to you, is part of my, what I see when it comes to coaching and leadership is understanding what, how the person needs to be led, what leadership they're looking for and what coaching they need to get them there. And when you can fit into that, then that makes you a better coach and a better leader.
2: Yeah. So um, in my book, I lay out the the world's simplest formula or framework for what coaching is. And it's three steps. It is okay. one, what do you want or where do you want to get Two, where are you now? And three, what's in between. And yeah. exactly as you just said, I believe that the first two parts are the most important and so many people want to focus on the third which is the stuff in between we want to give strategies without being clear on where it is we're headed in the first place yeah and as a coach i do that as a on a personal level but as a leader of an organization it's the exact same three steps and it's just the the first thing to ask is where do we want to go as an organization or as a team and then to your point of okay what does my team need or where is my team right now in relation to that And where does this, what does each individual team member need in order to become the person who has made that happen? Yeah. Um, And it's dead simple. And man, it's really hard.
1: Oh, it, 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 that, that is because it requires some serious platinum rule stuff, uh, treating people as they want to be treated. And now we're getting into psychology and reading cues and all that other stuff and getting people to a level of trust where they will share with you what it is. So here's one of my. So here's one of my stories related to the business card thing. I went to um, I went to a networking event here in Las Vegas, and uh, I'd been invited there by a friend of mine. And uh, the friend was running an hour late. I didn't find out until I was already there. I didn't really know anybody, and it was up in one of those um, VIP lounges in one of the casinos here in Las Vegas. And the room was dark, and the music was loud, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, b- between being a between being so introverted, they have to, they had to make a new Place for me on the left hand of that scale, and uh, the fact that uh, all that sensory overload was just killing me, I-, I was ready to scream. So I decided after 15 minutes, like, Hey, I'm just leaving. As I was walking out, I was walking by where they had the bar, and uh, some guy reached out and tapped me on the shoulder as I was walking or trying to get through the crowd and said, Hey, man, so what do you do? And I looked him right in the eye and I said, What does it fucking matter? <laughs> but hold. Pause. He laughed. He laughed and he said, you know, I, I I I gotta I gotta admire you for having the balls to call that out. Cause I gotta tell you, these things tire me out too. I ended up making a new friend and his friend became my client.
2: I love that. I, yeah, it's uh, I I what I, what I'm what I'm struck with is I can't believe how many networking events happen in super loud, uh, sensory overload places. And I'm like, how are we supposed to have an actual conversation when, um, I I can barely hear myself think.
1: Yeah, I went to this um one event in San Diego, and I got there a day early because I'm thinking, you know, having been to big events like that, the real action is in the networking parties and the after parties that's where the magic happens when you go to large seminars they have like ten thousand people in them it doesn't happen in the giant rooms where they have the have the sessions it's all the stuff that happens around the perimeter so i got there a day early so i could uh, get in on some of these networking parties and every single one of them they had a band playing it's like i didn't come here for a freaking concert if i wanted to go to a concert i know where there's a concert right here in this town there's and there's also concerts in las vegas i didn't have to come here for a concert uh, I deliberately came here a day early because I wanted the networking. I ended up not staying very long. Yeah. Because, 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 because how am I going to solve those three things that you gave me in the model for coaching when there's music blaring in my ear? And even when I'm leaning right up to the person, I can't hear a word they're saying.
2: So what I love in the story you told is that you just cut through all that nonsense, right? You said here, you're, you're either going to be one of my people who understands or or you're not. And yeah, uh, I'm okay either way.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and actually, you know what? That was actually just me kind of snapping out of frustration and annoyance. But it caught, taught me a lesson that there's a pattern interrupt within our communications that can break through some of these cycles of bland conversations that do not get to the heart of coaching and leadership. And how do we break through that so that we can achieve? the connections that we need in order to be great coaches and leaders.
2: When you said that you're more interested in what problem people have and they're looking to solve and you don't really like the question of what do you do? How do you, if you're at a networking event, how do you kind of, uh, we'll say like judo that or a that back?
1: Oh, I just, I just pretend like I didn't hear their question. I flip it around on them. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously, I, I tell the story when I first joined the rotary uh we uh we, you know we all have name badges I haven't been to a rotary meeting in a while because my business has just been nuts but uh and I need to get back to those things but I'll tell you but they have the you know my chapter has the uh luncheons every Thursday and they there we have name badges we paid 17 dollars when you join and uh you and on the badge it has your name. But it doesn't identify your company name. You don't get to say your company name. You have to describe what you you have to describe in a word or a phrase what your contribution is. So back then I put consultant because it's the only thing that's the only way I could think to describe it in one word. So I had these people coming up to me and say, uh oh, so uh so Alan, uh, uh Aaron, I oh, I'm sorry Adam, uh, what kind of consulting do you do? And I would just pretend like I didn't hear that and turn the conversation the other way. About a month after I joined, I became the author of the international Amazon best-selling Groundhog Days: An Event, Not a Business Strategy. So now I'm an author. So I pay another $17 for a new badge that, to this day, and is sitting down in their vault right now, says author slash speaker. So now that question becomes, oh, so uh, Aaron, uh, Alan, Adam, uh, so so uh, what's your book about? I'll tell you about my baby all day long.
2: Oh, yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. And uh, and and I've actually sold books that way because I'll tell them, hey, uh, uh, I don't have a copy on me right now. But if you're interested in it, you can get it on Kindle for a buck and or $2.99, whatever Amazon's valuing it for these days. And if uh, you want to have a, a paperback shipped to you, bring it to the next meeting. I will personally autograph it for you and take a photo with you holding it.
2: My, uh, that I love bringing that up in conversation. I'll tell you, my, my fiance has already sold more books than I have. I, my book isn't out yet, but basically everyone she meets in the world, um, becomes a fan of mine. Thanks to her. Yeah. So she somehow is able to talk about what I do in a way that I challenge. I am challenged to.
1: Yeah. That by the way, is a sleeper effect. It actually carries more credence because she's saying my wonderful fiance has a book coming out. Yeah. So she is giving an endorsement one step removed from you than you saying i have a book coming out now yeah she's your fiance so she's probably uh i mean i'm sure you have an awesome relationship uh you know she's your fiance and she's uh, committed to i'm going to spend my life with this guy that she's probably saying nice things about you we can take that to the bank and expect the, the check to clear her. but just the fact that she's saying it is oh she sees something in this man she's like, she thinks enough of him that she's going to commit to a lifetime with him. So I'll bet you if she says that his book is good, I probably should at least check this out. But if you say it, it's like, well, yeah, it's his own book. What's he going to do? Say it sucks? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it also helps that she's quite delightful. She should probably be on podcast appearances instead of me is what I'm discovering right now.
1: Well, uh, hey, hey, uh, if, if she's got something to say uh, and something to share, we'll have her on too that's all good uh <laughs> Perfect. seriously seriously tell her it's, it's cool now uh we have a few minutes left here and I want to get a few more things out of you and this is one that I really love I'm just gonna ask you the question let you run with it so <laughs> you make you share a lot and you've already mentioned this that coaches and leaders need their own coach I'd love for you to expand on that because this is something I'm very passionate about
2: yeah. It's very clear to me and has been since early in my days as a coach. And and I'll, I'll, I'll just share that. It took me about two years of coaching before I hired my own coach. But once I started to really get into it, I started to realize the value. And um, the way that I'll put it simply is that if we're doing really good work as a coach, and in a minute, I'll talk about leaders, but if we're doing really good work as a coach, what that means is that our clients will be up to really big things in the world. They will be doing things that challenge both their idea of what's possible and our idea of what's possible. And if we, as a coach, um, if I, as a coach, don't believe that my client's idea is possible, then I'm not going to be able to support them in the way that they deserve. And so what that means is that it's my responsibility to constantly be in my own growth process so that I can support my clients in the thing that they want to do. So that's part one. Part two is that if I'm doing good work, my clients are going to have their own triggers come up, the stuff that we talked about, that baggage. yeah, And their baggage is going to trigger my baggage because I'm a human. And so it's my responsibility to um, go and get supported in that from a coach. So this isn't about uh, coaches to grow my business. This isn't about coaches so I can be a better marketer. This is about coaches to support me in my own growth and transformation. Yeah. Um, and the same is true if I'm an organizational leader, if I have a team of people, I can rest assured that at least one of them is going to be a pain in the ass to me. And yeah. not because they're a pain in the ass, but because I think they are. And so then again it's my responsibility to go get supported so that I can be the leader that they need in order to grow.
1: Yeah, sometimes within organizations I am that pain in the ass.
2: Yeah, me too. That's why I have to work on my own.
1: Exactly. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> See for me, uh the epiphany was This happened many years ago. Is I went to my coach um, asking for help, his help with uh, a negotiation I was working on. And he gave me some guidance on it that was actually better than I expected. Like, he's like, I didn't even get a chance to fully explain it to him before he cut me off and gave me the answer. Like, he already knew where I was headed and he Mm. knew the destination. He just handed it to me. And I thought, holy hell, you not only gave me what I needed, you made this about 10 steps easier.
2: Yeah, and I then, often say,
1: oh, Yeah. Ahead. Okay, and then it occurred to me, if somebody else had come to me and wanted coaching on that same issue, I would have given them the same answer my coach did. However, I couldn't see it for myself because I was on the train in the dark tunnel seeing that little pin of light way at the end Whereas my coach was outside looking in and he could actually see more of the train than I could.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I I say this, even in my book that no one needs a coach. It's important for every coach to understand this. No one needs a coach. And most people don't have a budget set aside for a coach. So we just need to understand that, that that's sort of just, just true. And while no one needs a coach, it is way faster, way less painful, way less suffering to go through the growth process of life, or to your point to handle a something like a negotiation if we have a coach, and so you know, to your point about selling earlier is like here you have this problem, your problem is simply that you're a human, and if you want to make humaning a lot easier, work with me
1: yeah i uh you might want to rush to the Trademark office on that one because that might show up on one of my websites at some point fairly soon.
2: <laughs> you can have it, please. Free. Free. All
1: right. Uh let, let's you and I do a share and share alike on this one. Okay. All right. So so we made a deal, a tremendous deal, the best deal. We worked it out one-on-one. So uh that's awesome. I love doing this. So uh there's one other topic that uh, and if we have time for another one beyond this, that's great. But there's one more I really want to nail down here and I think it's kind of a synopsis or bringing together some of the threads that we have hanging down and some of the loops we've opened over the course of our conversation is the whole principle of marrying your body mind and soul as a leader and coach because when you are a coach and a leader it's really not a job you're all in
2: yeah so I want to say first that not every coaching conversation gets into the world of soul or spirit. Yeah. Most of mine do, but that isn't a requirement. So for anyone who's listening, who says like, you know, I don't want to talk about all this spiritual woo nonsense. You don't have to, you can go work with a coach and and not, not get into that. My personal bias and my personal opinion and belief is that. When we are on an entrepreneurial journey, we are on a spiritual journey. And this whole life is a spiritual journey. We're here to grow and to develop spiritually. And yeah. what that means is that we are a divine spirit who happens to be in this human body form right now that has a mind and a body and spirits all there. And so um, what that means for me is that, again, it's our responsibility to care for all of them because the I, I believe that the mind and the body are both doorways to getting connected to spirit. And so, you know, that there is a reason that historically people do things like fasting or intense workouts, uh, or heat and cold exposure nowadays, or breath work through their body in order to touch spirit, or they do things like mindfulness meditation or other meditation to go through the mind to access spirit. So both of those are doorways. But the idea is that my idea is that we are always in the, in the pursuit of growth and transformation, and that's just what it means to be a human. And so inevitably, if we're building a business, if we are already all those three of those things, um, we have to look at all three of those things if we want our business to be most successful. So that's my view on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. I've really enjoyed this conversation. This is fantastic. And for all of our listeners, subscribe to the Business Creators Radio Show, download this one, and listen to it a couple times. There is Golden Them Thar Hills. Now, <laughs> I do invite everybody, and if you have anything else you want to add to this, add it to it afterwards, but I do want to invite people to visit your website, which is at goldenbristle.com. G O L D E N B R I S T L E dot com, and if you missed that, there's an easy way to fix it. Come to our website, look in the notes, and click. So, when you visit this website, you're going to discover what it's like to work with Matt. You'll—he has some courses available. Uh, He's got a great blog you might want to check out, and uh, also uh, he's uh, got a newsletter that he sends about twice a month. I'm probably going to sign up for that myself because every little bit helps. So is there anything else you have for our listeners, any other invitations or anything like that?
2: That was great. Thanks, Adam. Uh, The one last thing that I'll add is that my, my book, this is coaching. It comes out on April 4th for the first day. And I think maybe the first week, the Kindle version will be on extreme discount. If you're a prime member, it might even be free. I don't know how Amazon works, but it's going to be super discounted. Um, We're really excited for that. And the book is written for coaches, but I also think that it's, it's, it's really can be valuable for anyone who's in a leadership position or interested in this idea of transformation and growth. There's so much in there and so many tools that I think are applicable all the time. I'm really excited for people to read it.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So I'll just say, I'll just remind you again, that you want to check out Matt's book, Uh, which is called This Is Coaching, comes out on April 4th, 2023, another reason to get on that mailing list. Uh, So Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education.
2: Oh, Adam, this has been a real pleasure for me too. Thanks so much.
0: We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show.